Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Luke chapter 18, starting to read at verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Well, good evening. Great to see you here. Let me add my welcome to Chris's. He said already, I'm Andy Fernley. I'm on the staff team here. Let me say a um, particularly warm welcome if you're, uh, if you're a guest here. Um, so wonderful to have uh, visitors here to support the guys as they were baptised. Lovely to have some new students and others amongst us as well. Uh, you're very welcome here. We're going to spend the next um, bit of time together looking at that story that Jesus told in Luke 18. Um, it might help you to keep it open in front of you. We'll be referring referring to it on our way through. And, um, you know, God says that when we look at the Bible, he'll help us to understand it. So as we begin, I'm just going to pray and ask God to help us. So um, do you have that open? And uh, I'll lead us in prayer together. Lord God, we pray that this evening you would please help me to explain what this passage says clearly and in a way that's faithful to the original meaning of the text. Please help us to hear clearly, to understand what it means, and please give us the honesty and openness of heart to know how we need to respond to it. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Well, this evening, um, I want to ask how you deal with the problem of guilt. And um, I want to help us to think about why baptism and why Christian faith are a good idea. But to help us to get there, I want to ask, how do you deal with the issue of guilt and of shame? Uh, I don't mean by that the sort of false guilt that we sometimes feel for the things that we're not responsible for. You, You know, the sort of feelings of shame that we need to learn to let go of. What I mean is the sense of guilt that we feel rightly for the ways that we've failed and let people down, but the ways that we've hurt people in the past and the ways that we've ignored God. Uh, it was Nelson Mandela who said, don't judge me by my successes, but by the failures that I've overcome, which is an inspiring quote, I think you'll agree, but how do we overcome the failures of the past? How do we deal with guilt After all, if we're honest, we know that it's true. In my best moments, I care about others. I'm I'm passionate about social justice, a better world. I care about my community. I want to do my part in my better moments. But if I'm honest, there are many times when I don't live up to those aspirations. 
when I fail to care about others and when I um, hurt other people, when I say and do things that I regret. If I can put it like this, there is a wide gap sometimes between the person that we put out there to the world, the me on Instagram, the, the me I put forward in my career, and the me who lies awake at two o'clock in the morning replaying that conversation from the previous day and wishing I'd been kinder or I'd behave differently. How do we deal with that gap? How do we deal with the problem of guilt and of shame? Uh, there was a film about 20 years ago called The Talented Mr. Ripley. I don't know if you've seen it. Um, to be honest, it's a pretty wretched film, so if you haven't, I wouldn't recommend it. But there's a brilliant moment in the film when the main character, who's played by Matt Damon, this is sort of before he bulked up and became a sort of cool spy character. He's, um, he's talking to a friend about the, the love interest who he's falling in love with. And he says, I want her to know me as I am. But don't you just take the past and put it in a room in the basement and then lock the door and never go in there. That's what I do. And then you meet someone special and all you want to do is toss them the key and say, open up, step inside. But you can't because it's dark and there are demons. And if anybody saw how ugly... If I could just take a giant eraser and rub out everything, starting with myself, but you see, and he stops talking. And I wonder if we know that feeling, the issue of guilt, about what we do with the things in the basement, the times from the past when we know that we failed. Let me be completely upfront and honest with you this Sunday evening. As I look back on my life, there are probably one or two people who have reason to wish that Andy Fernley had never been born. What do we do with the issue of guilt? And here in Luke 18, Jesus tells a story that addresses that exact issue head on. And he, he talks about two people who deal with the issue of guilt in very different ways. And of course, the shock of the story is that the guy we, we think is de dealing with things exactly right, Jesus says is wrong. And the last person in the world we'd expect to be right is the one that Jesus says has seen something very clearly. So let's dive into the story and see these two men who go up to the temple to pray and how they deal with the issue of guilt. Have a look down at verse 10 with me again. Should we just, just read that again? Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all that I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you that this man rather than the other one went home justified before God. Now let's um, uh, just notice that this is a story about guilt and about, um, verse 9, righteousness, 
Or at the end of the story, one man went home justified, and those sound like sort of religious jargon words, righteous and justified, but really all they mean is to have the issue of guilt dealt with, to be accepted or approved, to pass scrutiny, to be found not guilty. And just have a look at the two men with me for just a few minutes. Uh, First of all, you have the Pharisee in the story. Verse 10, a Pharisee um, went to the temple. And um, we can lose the impact of the story because we've got a lot of cultural baggage around the idea of Pharisees. You know, I don't know what your mind goes to when you hear the word Pharisee, but if you've been in church any time at all, I guess we know that when a Pharisee pops up, they're kind of one of the pantomime villains. You know, you're meant to go, boos, Pharisee, they're the bad guys, right? But not in Jesus' day, because in the first century, the Pharisees were emphatically the good guys. They weren't known for being hypocritical and cold. They were known for being devout, morally upright community leaders, widely revered. They cared for the poor and the vulnerable and were active in the community. A few years ago, I went to a charity dinner party. I don't know if you've been to the sort of thing, but there was a guest of honor at this dinner party, and it wasn't someone famous who you would have heard of, but he was someone who'd contributed significantly to the charity and uh, and done a, a number of remarkable things. And when he walked in the room, the guest of honor, everyone stood on their feet and started applauding. And, and that's the sort of person that the Pharisee in this story is an upright, well-loved community leader, someone who gave back. There's no indication in the story that he isn't sincere. Just have a look at verse 12 for a minute. Have a look at his prayer again. He prays, I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all that I get. You know, an Orthodox Jew in the first century was expected to fast once a year, and here's a man who, of his own volition, fasts twice a week. An Orthodox Jew is expected to give a tenth of some of their earnings towards caring for people. But this is a man who who didn't hold back. This is a man who, who gave generously and liberally to help the poor. And there's no indication that he isn't a sincere, good man. This is not the sort of person we expect to struggle with the issue of guilt. And yet Jesus says that he gets two important things wrong in this story. He gets two important things wrong. The first one is that he finds the answer to guilt in himself. Did you see that in verse 9? To some who are confident of their own righteousness. Or again, in verse 11, the Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself, or stood by himself and prayed Uh, He stands aside and he prays. Look at the prayer. God, look at how many times the word I is mentioned in the prayer. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all that I get. He finds the answer to the problem of guilt in himself. Here is someone who, um, who treats his moral and spiritual life a bit like a sort of job interview, if you like. I don't know, when was the last time you had to go and have a job interview? Uh, I was talking to someone recently about their, um, their worst job interview. He said that um, he, he's a teacher. He went to interview at this grand old boarding school, but he got so lost in the grand old building, he never actually made it to the interview. 
he did have a lovely cup of tea with the headmaster's wife in their private apartment, but he never found the interview. I don't know when was the last time you went for a job interview, but you know how it works. You, um, you focus on the positives, you list your achievements, and you certainly hope that the interviewers don't see, well, the you that's up at 2 a.m. replaying the conversation where you wish you'd been kinder. You put out the, um, the professional, outwardly accomplished version of you, and you hold back the... Um, the inner person. Uh, and here is someone who treats the moral and spiritual universe like that. He plays to the positives. Notice he's able to do that because he focuses exclusively on external things. Verse 11, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Here are the outward behaviors I haven't done. Instead, I fast twice a week and give a tenth. He focuses on the external behaviors, but he never asks, have I been a kind person or a loving person? What has my character been like? What have I been like inwardly? And yet it's so easy to do, isn't it? Maybe we find the list of things that he prays here a bit, a bit crass. Maybe they don't really connect with us, and yet... How many world religions essentially say, do your best and you'll make it in life? I was talking to a student just this week who said, I, I, I know I've not been perfect, but hopefully the good things in my life will outweigh the bad. And that's precisely this mentality, isn't it? Finding an answer for guilt in ourself. How many philosophies tell us to forget about the things we've done wrong and to focus on the positive? Finding an answer in ourselves. And listen, don't hear me wrongly tonight. I'm not against people doing good, especially if they're my neighbours. And I'm not against people coming to church because how on earth are you going to find out about God and about the Lord Jesus Christ if you don't come to church? But Jesus says that simply to focus on the external, to find the answer in ourselves and the things we've done is a significant problem. And the second thing he gets wrong is that he's constantly looking over his shoulder at how other people are doing. Did you notice that? Verse 9, those who are confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else. Verse 11, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector you see, the reason that he's able to prop up this sense that he's doing okay is that he looks over his shoulder at how other people are doing. Uh, we were driving up the M1 um, last week, and it's so easy, isn't it? As you drive up the motorway, you just drive at the speed that the people around you are driving. And then maybe suddenly you look down at the speedo and you think, okay, not, not really the right speed to be driving, uh, not least in my Vauxhall Zafira. Um, <laughs> But, um, but we find it so easy to drive at the speed of the people around us, morally and spiritually, don't we? We look over our shoulders and ask how other people are doing. And it's an easy thing to do because you only have to open up the BBC News app on your phone and scroll down for a few seconds to see the worst kind of immorality and evil. And immediately you can say to yourself, well, at least I'm not as bad 
as that. At least I'm doing better than they are. And don't we find it easy to ignore the things that we do wrong and to focus on how other people are doing? The person who says, well, I've been a bit creative with my expenses, but at least I'm not a benefit cheat. I lost my temper with my children in the supermarket, but at least I didn't swear at them like that woman did. Sure, I can't forgive him for what he's done, but I've never physically hurt somebody. Do you see, we just look over our shoulders and we find the justification to say that we're doing okay. But isn't it a fact of life that we hate judgmental people? That we hate people who look down their noses at us? And yet, don't we find ourselves doing that all the time? You see, if you're going to find the answer to the problem of guilt in yourself, you have to look around you at how other people are doing and say, I think I'm doing okay. Or or maybe we don't. And maybe if this character doesn't connect with you, let me ask you this. Why is it, do you think, that we're so worried about what other people think of us? Why do we experience that anxiety, that, that insecurity that eats you up about whether people will really believe that the person I put out there is the real me? Now, I was chatting to someone um, uh, just the other day about imposter syndrome. You know, he was saying, um, in my job, people have a certain view of me, and sometimes I just worry that they're going to find out that that just really isn't me. You know, actually, I'm just a child, and I don't know what I'm doing, and if they ever found out, well, well, they'd think so much less of me. Why do we feel like that? Well, it's because we have no answer for the problem of guilt. We know we're not the people that we ought to be, and we look around ourselves for justification. And Jesus says, look, it's a common thing to do, an easy mistake to make, But it's not a trivial mistake, finding the answer for the problem of guilt in ourselves. Because if one of the issues is the way that we end up looking at other people, the far greater issue is God. Because God cares about you and the details of your life. He cares about every other person in your life. And so he takes it deadly seriously whenever we do anything that fails to love him or love other people with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. He takes it deadly serious when we don't love other people as ourselves. And here's the thing. God knows you. He made you. And he knows you. He knows what we put in the basement and close the door and never think about. I don't know what you think about deep down. I don't know what the desires of your heart are. I don't know what the things are that you hope that no one will find out about ever. But God does because he made you and he knows you. The Pharisee focuses on external things. He compares himself with other people and he never gets honest with the God who knows his heart. And when we do that, it's like we sit in the doctor's waiting room and we, we look at the other people sat in the waiting room and we think, oh goodness, well at least I don't have a hacking cough like she does. Thank goodness I don't look as pale and queasy as that guy over there. I mean, he's really struggling. And then we walk in to see the GP when our name is called and we say, hey, I just wanted to stop by and say I am in A1 health. 
no problem here, I'm fine. When all the time there is a cancer eating us alive on the inside. See, try and find the answer in ourselves, in the external things we do, in how we compare to the other people in the waiting room, and we'll never deal with the reality of guilt and shame and the person who lies awake at 2 a.m. thinking about that conversation from the day before. The Pharisee, Jesus says, will be humbled. Verse 14, there'll be a day when everyone who exalts himself will be humbled because God will say to that person, you're not welcome in my kingdom. But if that's the Pharisee, Jesus turns our eyes to a positive example, to someone to be emulated, and, and, and he is the last person you would expect to emulate. Because, you know, if we've got baggage around Pharisees, we, we probably don't have enough baggage around the idea of a tax collector. So let's think about the tax collector for a minute, because, um, you know, if you live in modern Britain, I, I, I don't know, some of you here will have had the exquisite pain of filling out your tax return. Anyone know what I'm talking about? There are some people who will have done that. Some of you will be young enough that you've never had to suffer through this experience. But um, I can think of nothing worse. I'm told some people really enjoy it. And frankly, if that's you, I cannot help you. Okay, you are beyond my help. But, okay, um, we do get all sorts of public services back, don't we, for our tax money. And so maybe we don't enjoy forking it over and seeing it on our payslip and doing the tax return. But actually, at the end of the day, they do take out the bins and they provide social housing and all sorts of other wonderful things that we're really pleased with. But that is not how things went down in the first century when Jesus tells this story. Because Israel was an occupied nation, the Romans were in control of everything, and the way that they sorted out taxation was to sell the right to um, tax your neighbours to the highest bidder. They put it out to tender, and of course that encouraged massive corruption. Because if you were the highest bidder, you would then have to tax more than you'd bid in order to make a profit, to make it worthwhile. It was a system guaranteed to produce corruption, and worse than that, it made you a collaborator. One writer puts it like this, to be a tax collector was like being the mayor of a French town in the Second World War. It meant having the social status of a terrorist sympathizer or a loan shark or a sex attacker. And so imagine the scene for a minute. Um, on the front row here at Christchurch Fullwood is someone who knows what they're doing. They're an upright, upstanding member of the community, and they're praying to God about themselves. And they're doing it with some confidence, but no offense to the guys on the back row. I don't know you, okay? But on the back row, there's the terrorist sympathizer who used to send money to support ISIS in Syria... And in, they're feeling awkward about even being here because they think if anyone around me knew the sort of person that I was, they'd probably ask me to get up and leave. And Jesus says that's the guy who deals with the problem of guilt rightly. <laughs> that's the guy to emulate. Why? Two reasons. First of all, he admits his guilt. Look down at verse 13 with me. The tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. He admits his guilt. And when Jesus uses the word sinner, 
and sin. He's not talking about a word that you use to sell ice cream. He doesn't mean something that's naughty but nice. And he doesn't mean someone who breaks the rules occasionally. He's talking about someone who inwardly fails to love God and to love other people like they love themselves. Someone who's turned their back on loving God and very often turned their back on loving other people as well. I was chatting to a friend of mine um, recently, and um, I don't think he's going to win a prize for quotable quote of the year with this, but he has got it into a sermon, okay? So bear with me. He said, Andy, we've all got stuff, but at least these days some people are more honest about it than they used to be. You've got that, we've all got stuff, but at least these days some people are more honest about it than they used to be. Now, I kind of wanted to agree with that because I guess I do think that in our culture there's a sort of greater honesty about some of the stuff in the basement, isn't there? There's a bit more room for vulnerability and forgiveness than maybe there was 50 years ago or something like that. But if we're really honest, are we that much more willing to be open about the reality of our hearts and our lives before God. Uh, We do a course here called Christianity Explored. I know a number of you have done that course. And um, on that course, the the presenter um, asks you to imagine that a film has been made of your whole life. And it includes every detail, your words, your actions, and your thought life as well. And he asks you to imagine that film being played in a church service like this one, in front of everyone who was here. And I wonder how you'd feel about that. I would have some moments I was really proud of, and um, you know, we'd have to wait quite a while through the early years to get there, but there'd be some moments up there I'd really want you to see. To be honest, there'd be some moments that I'm willing to sort of be vulnerable about and tell you about, but there'd be a lot of things up there that I would never, ever want you guys to see. Well, here is, a, here is a man who in the silence, in the back row, prays to God and opens up the basement. He opens the door and is honest about his guilt and his shame, even though it's dark and there are demons and frankly it's ugly down there. He doesn't compare himself to anyone else. He doesn't focus on the positives or stick to external things. He's ruthlessly honest with God. Have mercy on me, a sinner. But more than that, verse 13, he asks for forgiveness. Look at it again, his prayer. God, have mercy on me. Notice he doesn't say, God, I'll turn over a new leaf, or God, I've failed in the past, but I'll do better next time. He says, Lord, God, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. It's a word that means turn aside anger. Now he prays in the quietness of his heart, God, I know you're right to be angry with me for the way that I've treated you and other people, but could you do something about that anger? It can't come from me. There's nothing I can do, but could you do something? Could you find a way to have mercy? And of course, the great news for this guy and for every sinner since is that Jesus told this story on his way to Jerusalem 
to die on a cross as a sacrifice, just a few days later, as a sacrifice to bear our guilt and God's right anger on himself. In John's gospel, Jesus put it like this. He said, there is a cup, a cup of God's very great anger at the guilt of the world. And Jesus says he went to the cross to drink that cup to the last drop. Until there was nothing left. Nothing left. And so this man, the one who cries out for mercy, the one who recognizes the stuff in the basement and says, God, have mercy on me. Well, Jesus says, verse 14, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home right with God, justified, the problem of his guilt dealt with. The solution didn't come from inside of himself. The solution came from Jesus, who went to a cross to bear his guilt and the anger of God. I meet a lot of people who think that Christianity is basically the religion of the Pharisee in this story. Do the right things, do better than the people around you, and you'll be okay. But you see, Christianity is not the religion of the Pharisee, but the faith of the tax collector who's honest with God and cries out, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus didn't come for the people who think that they're fine. He came for the people who are willing to be honest about the stuff in the basement and to ask him for mercy. Now, a little thing that you probably didn't notice about the baptism before, just a little thing you probably didn't notice, no one baptized themselves this evening, did they? They were all fully dunked by Chris and Gareth. And there's a reason for that. It's because baptism is not outwardly doing the right things, but a picture of the fact that we need to be washed by someone else on the inside. We need Jesus to drink the cup for us to deal with the problem of our guilt. And let me say, I guess in a group this size, there will be some here who for your whole life you have thought that Christianity was always about being a, was all about being a decent person. Or maybe you've had some sense that God is kind to us, but you've always known that you had to do your bit. And if that's you, can I ask you this evening, can I appeal to you really to be honest about the stuff in the basement, about the reality of your heart? and to ask God to forgive you. Because that's what being a Christian is. The faith of the tax collector. And hey, look, it it might be that there are some uh, here this evening, and actually you're all too aware of the ways that you failed. It it might be that like um, some of those dear brothers and sisters up the front, you'd be quite ready to say, actually, I, I know that I need someone to help me. Well, there is good news for you this evening because Jesus went to a cross precisely to bear your guilt. And this evening, to enjoy that for yourself is as simple as praying those words of the tax collector, God, have mercy on me, a sinner, because the Lord Jesus died. And hey, we've even got some water here if you want to make it outwardly official. Come talk to me afterwards.
But listen, I guess there'll also be a lot of people here for whom this truth is a familiar truth. Uh, Brothers and sisters who are baptised this evening treasure this truth. So easy to slip into thinking that the answer for my guilt has to come from me or to slip into looking over my shoulder at other people. Treasure this truth. Pray this kind of prayer every day. God, have mercy on me, a sinner, and love Jesus for bearing your guilt for you. Well, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to pray, um, I'm going to pray that prayer of the tax collector this evening. But before I do, let me just mention it. Maybe you're here and actually you're thinking, this is all very interesting. I'm not ready to pray this for myself. And that's fine. Please do keep coming along Sunday by Sunday. We love to have people asking their questions here with us. But if you're a Christian here, whether you've been a Christian for one day or years and years, Or if you want to make this prayer your own, then I wonder if you would join me silently in praying this in your heart. Let us pray now. Lord God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I'm sorry for the ways that I've not loved you or other people in the way that I should. Thank you that Jesus promises mercy because he bore the guilt that I cannot bear. In his name we pray. Amen.